Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor at Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Uh, We are in John chapter 19 this week. John chapter 19. Part three of this uh, series we've just started called His Last Days. John chapter 19. Church, I want you to imagine that you're standing in a beautiful garden filled with vibrant flowers and, and captivating scents. And as you stroll among the blooms, you come across a rose bush. Its velvety petals catch your eye. And so you reach out to touch one of the flowers. But as you do, a thorn pricks your finger, causing a sting of pain, a drop of blood. And in that instant, you experience the bitter sweetness of life. Of course, the thorn symbolizes the bitterness, the trials, the the hardships, the sorrows that we encounter along the way. The rose represents the sweetness, moments of love and beauty that bring us joy. But you see, even amid life's thorns, there's always the potential for growth, for beauty, for hope. Church, our salvation is a beautiful thing. But the way it came to us is anything but pretty. So when we think of our salvation, it can be a bittersweet thing because Jesus gave His precious blood. It's bitter because it was our sin that nailed Him to the cross. But it's sweet because it was His love for us that held Him on that cross. Sweet because salvation is free. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Paul said in Ephesians 2, it is by grace through faith alone, not by our works. Now, here's something else that's really sweet for Christians. Did you know that there are rewards that we as Christians can earn that will be granted to us in heaven? Now, sometimes, you know, different people classify it with different labels, but you've got basically five crowns. There's the incorruptible crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. And what is really amazing to me is that someday in glory, we'll be able to take those crowns that we've earned in this life, bow before Jesus, and place them at his feet in the ultimate act of worship. But you see, there's another crown that we've all earned, a bitter crown, a tarnished crown, a crown of sorrows, a crown that by all rights we should have worn. You see, the harsh reality is that each of us deserves the punishment that Jesus received. He died as our substitute. The crown that he bore was meant for us. And so the big idea behind our study this week is simply this, that Jesus' crown with thorns represents the painful curse of our sin. Let's read our text together. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 of John chapter 19. Read along with me. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face 
Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Now, much like our study of Peter's betrayal of Christ a couple of Sundays ago, today's message is also a story that we can kind of read in three parts. Or think of it as a play with three acts. Act number one, we'll call the scourging of a Savior. Look at verse one again. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, all four of the Gospels attest to Jesus being flogged, or as some of your translations will say, scourged. It was a most cruel and unjust thing for Pilate to scourge or to flog an innocent person. And Pilate had already declared that he found no fault with Jesus. But we know what Pilate was thinking. He had hoped that this punishment would satisfy the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish religious council, and that they wouldn't demand the death of Jesus. In fact, Luke's gospel confirms this. Now, ironically, Pilate probably thought that this flogging was actually a humane alternative to crucifixion. But let me tell you, there is nothing humane about flogging. Now, the gospel writers, John included, really didn't offer much description of Jesus' scourging. But for first century readers, they didn't have to. Because throughout the Roman Empire, people understood the severity of the beating. Flogging was something that was carried out by professionally trained soldiers. The victim would be stripped naked, tied or shackled to a sturdy column, and two soldiers standing on either side of the victim would alternately hit the victim, beating him continuously, one blow after another. The instrument they used, the Roman scourge, was also called the flagrum. It was a short whip that was made of three or more straps of leather connected to a handle. And these leather straps were knotted with a weight at the end and embedded with things like metal or nails or shards of bone. And the weighted end of this weapon would actually tenderized muscle and would strike with such a concussive force that it would bruise internal organs. And against the chest, especially with the arms raised, that beating could cause such a contusion of the heart that it would make it susceptible to rupture if, if crucifixion were to follow. The flagrum would sometimes contain a hook at the end, and it was given the very terrifying name, the scorpion. And historians like Eusebius of Caesarea described how scourging would quickly remove the flesh, leaving skin hanging like ribbons, and would expose a bloody mass of muscle and bone, sometimes even exposing the internal organs. I mean, flogging was so incredibly brutal that it was often referred to as the halfway death. Isaiah 52, 14 prophecy of the suffering servant suggests that the Romans beat Jesus so brutally that people were astonished to look at him, that his form didn't even look human. In fact, a very literal translation of Isaiah 52, 14 reads, so marred from the form of man was his aspect that his appearance was not as that of a son of a man. 
Now, if Jesus had been some rebel, some religious extremist, a, a zealot, a criminal, then we can understand the punishment. But this was the scourging of our Savior, a man with whom Pilate had found no fault. I mean, no one was less deserving of punishment than the man the Bible says knew no sin. And yet Jesus did it willingly. Why? Well, why would a kidney donor endure the ordeal of major surgery? Why does a mother endure the pain of childbirth? Love. His love for us. Which brought us beauty for ashes. So act one we'll describe as the scourging of the Savior. Act two, we see the mocking of a monarch. Look at verses two and three. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And were slapping his face. In last week's study in John chapter 18, we established that not only is Jesus a king, but he is the king. Well, the Romans didn't recognize him as such. And the mocking of Jesus, actually, they used two objects to do this. Two objects that symbolize royalty. A crown and a robe. Now, since this flogging normally belonged to soldiers, well, the same soldier who just beaten Jesus were also the ones who were mocking him, pressing down a thorny crown onto his head to inflict pain. Now, the imperial cult, uh, which worshiped Roman emperors as gods, very prevalent in Jesus' day. Well, as a mockery of Christ's kingship, the weave of thorns actually imitated crowns worn by Rome's divine rulers, people whose images we would see on coins and stuff. Well, Jesus' crown was believed to have been made from the thorny date palm, whose thorns can exceed 12 inches long. And these are woven together in such a way that some of the thorns are, are sticking straight up around the crown. And, and it kind of made him look like one of these Roman god kings with, with radiating beams coming from his head. Now the text says that a purple robe was placed on Jesus, completing this mocking picture since the purple was the color of royalty. And with his costume on, they began to jeer at Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews! actually imitating a greeting that was reserved normally for Caesar. And they bowed down before him in mock worship. And they struck him. Mark's gospel adds that they'd also struck him with a mock scepter that was made from a reed. And they spit on him. In fact, the Greek text indicates, and, and Matthew's account confirms this, that the soldiers used the scepter to beat him on the head again and again. So when the soldiers saw him in this elegant robe that Herod had provided, they decided to further mock this king with a crown of thorns, a stick for a scepter, and sarcastic taunts of, Hail, King of the Jews! 
Now, if they were still alive today, most of my teachers at Seymour Elementary School would have described me as an excellent student and, and, and a pretty good kid. You know, I distinctly remember a few occasions when no doubt trying to impress friends. I was cruel to other kids on the playground. I, I even remember using racial slurs, mocking other kids. Now, 50 plus years later, I'm still ashamed. Now, you might be thinking, hey, we, we can cut you some slack. You were just a kid. But, you know, as an adult, I have found all new ways to wound people, even Jesus. Now, Jesus would very soon look upon the very people who mocked him and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. But I do know. I know all too well. Proverbs 26, 11 says, as a dog returns to his vomit, so does a fool to his folly. And every time I go back to the same sin again and again and again, I mock the suffering of Christ. Every time I insist that my plans for me are better than God's plans, I slap Jesus' face. And every time I refuse to obey his word, I'm like a Roman bully spitting in the face of Jesus. Every time I hurt a fellow human being, it's like I'm jamming those thorns further into Jesus' scalp. It mocks his sacrifice. And yet, he forgives me. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God promises in, in, in Hebrew 8, 12 that I will forgive their wrongdoing and will never again remember their sins. Now, way back in Genesis Chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, thorns actually became a reminder of the curse of sin upon the earth. In fact, the ground would forevermore produce thorns and thistles that man would labor and toil to try to remove. And the very fact that thorns, which came as a direct consequence of the fall of humanity, were worn by Christ, gives us this unforgettable illustration that our sins were the cause for his suffering and shame on the day that he wore my crown. Act one showed us the scourging of a savior. Act two, the mocking of a monarch, King Jesus. Look at act three though, verses four and five. We'll call it the presentation by a politician. Look at verse four. Pilate went outside again and said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Here is the man! Now, anyone who's ever watched White House press coverage or any of the major news channels is familiar with the concept of political spin. 
You know, spin techniques include things like, like careful timing of the release of information or selective presentation of facts, careful selection of words and phrases meant to evoke certain responses in the hearers or, or selective choice of sound bites or a redefining of terms or, or phrases. And people who do this, we call them spin doctors or spin meisters or spin merchants. And a true spinmeister possesses the ability to, to maintain charm and wit while often misleading reporters, to both intimidate and court news correspondents, to manage a litany of damaging stories when an administration is just drowning in controversy. Well, Pilate was a true politician and he was in full-blown spin mode. He is desperately trying to spin this tricky situation to his own advantage any way that he can. I mean, he's trying to make the best of a really insecure position. Over the years, his status had been undermined by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, which possessed uh, much influence, wealth, power, there was also the constant challenge of radical groups, particularly the Zealots and the Essenes. And the Feast of Passover was at hand, and with, with Passover, there's thousands of people crowding into Jerusalem. That could always make for an explosive situation. And Pilate couldn't help but wondering about his standing with Caesar, who had developed a pretty special relationship with the Judean king, Herod. So in his desire to sidestep a political landmine in true politician's fashion and a desire to avoid unrest and to appease the protesters, Pilate ordered that Jesus be severely beaten, even though he found no fault with Jesus. I mean, you talk about your mixed messages. Here's a guy standing in, in front of him who's just been beaten within an inch of his life, and yet Pilate says he's innocent? And now he addresses the people. Here is the man. And as we ponder Pilate's dilemma, maybe, just maybe, we understand the anxiety that he might be feeling. What it would have been like to have an innocent man standing in front of you, beaten and bloodied because of your orders. Now, according to Luke's gospel, Pilate the politician had hoped that the Jewish leaders would, would see the mangled body of Jesus and would withdraw their demands for his execution. Here is the man. But John inserts a, a, an interesting little word into the Greek text of verse 5. Edu is the word. Edu is something that it, it marks strong emphasis. Emphasis. It's often translated as look or behold. What it basically means is pay attention. So you know, what Pilate's saying here is sort of like, all right, look, here's your guy. I punished him. Satisfied? Pilate declares, here is the man. A couple of years ago, summer of 2022, in fact, right before we moved to Texarkana, Christy and I led a group to Scotland and England on a Baptist heritage tour. Of course, along the way, we saw more than our share of old churches and castles and museums and that kind of stuff. But in Oxford, England, you'll find the Ashmolean 
Museum. The main hall there is lined with statues of Roman emperors and their families. And these larger-than-life statues were brought to Oxford from the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire. The Romans placed them there to, to show the locals who they were. They set up likenesses of themselves so that people could look at them and say to themselves, that's the man who rules over us. That's the man we owe our allegiance to. Here in John 19, we find ourselves on a Friday morning looking at the Roman governor and his peculiar new prisoner. He has allowed his soldiers to dress up the prisoner as a, as a king of sorts. Then Pilate says those haunting words. Here is the man. Ironically, Pilate really didn't pay attention to Jesus. We talked about that in last week's message. Didn't recognize him for who he truly was when he said, here's the man. He was not declaring Jesus to be a figure that we owe allegiance to. But you and I, we know better. As N.T. Wright says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, here is the true image of the true God. Here is the one who has brought God's wisdom into the world, the living embodiment of God, the one who has made the invisible God visible. Here is the king. Here is the breathing statue of the emperor of all placed within the Roman emperor's world so that people could see who their true master was. And all his rebel subjects could do is mock, slap, and scream for blood. As John would write in John chapter 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Wright continues, when the living, loving God comes in person, in the person of his own son, to live among us rebels, in the world he made and still loves, the appropriate form for him to take is not the superhero sweeping through the rebel state with horses and chariots, defeating the rebellion in a blaze of glory. The appropriate form for him to take, the kind of living statue which will tell his subjects who he is, is the form Jesus has now taken. Pilate wouldn't look any closer. But for those of us willing to take a closer look at the crown of thorns, Pilate's words, behold the man, invite us to reflect on the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And nearly 2,000 years later, we know how the story ends. And yet, we should be highly motivated to read and to reread that story again and again, to, to read the account of the events leading up to Christ's crucifixion over and over, not just at Easter time. Now, for Pilate, his time of curiosity, of, of questioning, indecision, confusion, spin doctoring, and finally rejection of Jesus had come and gone. But for countless others living today, 
they still need to hear the good news of redemption and restoration. It is really hard for us to imagine what agony, what excruciating pain Christ went through. In fact, the word excruciating was invented because of what he went through. It's from a Latin word that means out of the cross. It's hard for us to fathom what he went through on the day he wore my crown. But the suffering that we've read about powerfully highlights the willingness of King Jesus to, to endure unimaginable cruelty, demonstrating the, the unfathomable depths of his love for humanity. And understanding that, it, it gives us a sense of the magnitude of our salvation. Wait, what? He did that for me? Why? Because there are no lengths that our loving God would not go to to provide our restoration. You know, the writer of Hebrews actually says it was joy, yes, joy, that drove Jesus to the cross. So in, instead of looking away from the horrifying suffering that Jesus endured, we should fix our focus, our gaze on him, especially what he went through. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 2. Now, do you know what the joy that lay before him was? It was you. It was me. You're the joy. Seeing you made whole and complete and free, seeing you reconciled to God the Father, that's what drove Jesus to endure. And as we learn to contemplate Jesus' joyful suffering, then we learn to grow in gratitude and, and humility and a desire to live lives that are aligned with his word and with his will. Now, as we contemplate those things, what changes do we need to make? What actions do we need to take in response to Jesus' suffering? Here's a starter. Pray for the pilots. Because there's a whole world full of people who just like Pontius Pilate did not recognize Jesus for the savior and king that he is. I mean, you probably know people who've never accepted Christ as Savior. Pray for them. Pray for them daily that they might hear the testimony of love and forgiveness that Christ can bring. Because unlike Pilate, it's not too late for them to make a decision to be restored to God. So we pray for the pilots out there. Now, here's something else that we need to do 
as disciples of Jesus, we count the cost. Although the gift of eternal life is free, accepting that gift, well, it means that we're required to count the cost of following him, of being Jesus' disciples. That means that in following Christ, we can't simply follow our own inclinations and desires. We can't follow him and follow the world's way at the same time. In fact, following Jesus may mean that you, you lose something. You use, lose relationships or you lose dreams or you lose material things or you might even lose your life. Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus challenges us to take up not his cross, but our cross, my cross, to deny ourselves and to follow him. And, you know, and if he went through so much to wear our crown of thorns caused by our sin, well then, you know, any inconvenience, any hardship in sharing the gospel with someone else, that hardly compares to just how great Jesus' love for us is. Abandon, shallow, me first, faith, cheap grace, and count the cost. Now, if we're going to pray for the pilots, there's something else we need to do. We need to call the wanderers. Now, back when I was a kid, you know, way back in the, uh, the era of stone knives and bearskins, when the word Nintendo or PlayStation was not in our vocabulary, we spent lots of time in this magical land called outside, <laughs> playing with other kids all over the neighborhood. And that's back in the day when parents really felt safe letting their kids out of sight. And we'd play, we'd roll them all over the place. But when it was supper time, many a mom would come out on the front porch and begin to yell loudly to their kid, Honey, supper! Time to come home! There's a whole world full of broken and empty and lost wanderers who've been scourged by sin mentally, emotionally, spiritually laid bare. And they need to know that they can come home to Jesus and find grace and forgiveness and hope and healing. And you and I, we're God's megaphones to the world to announce the call. It is time to come home. Come home. Meet your king. Enjoy his divine company. Come feast at his table. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.